As a boy, I felt besieged by Beechonites. My Uncle Peter was one. He didn't get on with his brother-in-law, my dad. When he came to our house, he might deign to remove his string-backed driving gloves, but he wouldn't take off his car coat. We're not staying, thanks. It's possible he kept the engine of his beloved Ford Capri, or whatever was that year's model, running outside, while he grudgingly accepted a cup of tea. He was an adherent of the sinister rail-replacement philosophy, which had a vogue in the 1970s. All railways, even the trunk routes, would be replaced by roads. My dad once scored a rhetorical coup by asking, "'And would you run fast coaches along these roads?' "'We certainly would,' replied Uncle Peter. "'And would these coaches follow one another in quick succession?' "'Absolutely.' So there would be hardly any gaps between them? That's right. Then that, said my dad, is called a train. Looking back, I think Uncle Peter was drawn into the prevailing glib neophilia. The idea that said Britain, having lost its empire and been outstripped by America, must get with it. Even if that meant middle-aged men, like him, wearing flares and long hair, even if they didn't really have any hair, even if this meant wrecking the countryside with motorways and the towns with car-oriented redevelopment and abandoning British industry. But Uncle Peter did seem to be on the winning side, and I think of my childhood as one long railway decline. Steam traction faded, and in 1963 the steam locomotive weather vane on head office came close to being replaced by a diesel. Yes, relatively glamorous Deltic diesel electrics appeared on the East Coast mainline. Their cab windows made them look as though they were wearing wraparound shades, and they were the only engines I spotted, partly because they had names, not just numbers. They were called after racehorses or regiments, and I never knew which of the two the Deltic called Royal Scots Grey was named after. But the only reason we had Deltics was that there wasn't the money to electrify the line. In 1965, British Railways became British Rail, in much the same ingratiating way that Anthony Wedgwood Ben became Tony Ben. A new, doer and depressed livery was introduced, blue and off-white, known as blue and dirt. In 1960... B.R. had introduced a series of luxury trains called the Blue Pullman. They had full air conditioning and an intercom, enabling on-board announcements. Both innovations soon became standard on ordinary B.R. carriages. So that was the end of peace and quiet on a train, and the pleasures of sticking your head out of the window, or opening the window when you got too hot. The greater speed of trains, also, did for those pleasures— You can't stick your head out at 125 miles per hour. In the early 70s, the coaling plant and the water tower on the York railway lands were demolished, with some difficulty, and by now the luster was going out of our continental railway holidays. Freddie Laker was a celebrity with his charter plane business, and Huey Green hosted a game show called The Sky's the Limit, which began with an exciting shot of an aeroplane taking off and featured prizes in the form of what would now be called air miles. 
Not that Huey Green was anti-train. He lived in Chiltern Court, which sat above Baker Street Station, and he had a big model railway in his living room. In 1976, the Intercity 125, or HST, high-speed train was introduced. This, still ubiquitous, could do 125 miles per hour and had pleasingly streamlined front and back ends. But it was another stopgap diesel in the absence of electrification. And when you'd seen one, you'd seen them all. The carriages associated with the HSTs were called British Rail Mark III, and it was with these that BR standardised and open, partly in emulation of aeroplanes. The seating was open plan, no compartments. Before then, compartments...